but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. Eternal Father, who art ever our God, our Father, for Christ's sake, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in him hast predestinated us to be conformed unto his image, to be sons and daughters in thy house. The Lord, it is thy love. Thy fatherly love toward us. And that makes it possible for us to know thee, to love thee, and to turn to thee in love, confessing thy name for all thy goodness and all thy faithfulness which thou re revealest to us as Jehovah who changes not and knoweth no shadow of turning. And we know and confess that thou hast chosen unto thyself a church from before the foundations of the earth to be gathered and preserved 
through the power of thy word and spirit until that church shall be perfectly united with thee in thy glory in the perfection of thy covenant life. And we know also by that same faith and the assurance wrought by thy spirit of adoption within us that we are and forever shall remain the living members of that church. It is in that confidence that we come unto thee this evening knowing that thy church is still in the midst of the purging process, still in the midst of the trials and the fire of affliction of this present time, still in the midst of that battle of faith to which thou hast called her. It is our peace, our confidence, that in the midst of all turmoil and unrest, through the smoke and din of battle, and through all the confusion created by sin and works of evil men, that thy counsel stands. Thy church is safe. The light of thy glory is never dim, and thy truth stands rock firm. We thank thee, O our God, that thou hast preserved thy church even until now, throughout the ages. Particularly until now, when the very end of the ages has come upon us, and that we know thou wilt further preserve her. We thank thee for the confidence that thou hast used even the trials and the sufferings of thy church to lead her into thy truth, to cause thy truth to be developed, and to be carried on from generation to generation and confessed and lived and preserved. And that thou dost also call us to preserve, to defend and to maintain the truth that thou, o Lord, art God alone and that thy counsel stands, that thou workest thy work and that thou workest it alone in sovereign almighty power. We pray that thou wilt make us steadfast always, willing to suffer, to bear reproach, to be as nothing, to count all things but growth, that we may be thy instrument to pass on that truth and to preserve it for the generations to come until our Lord appears. Unto that end wilt thou be with us this evening. Bless him who will address us. 
that physically sustained him, spiritually enlightened him, and give us an hour of fellowship with thee, that we may grow in thy grace and be spurred on to fight the battle of faith. Come what may, looking always for the crown of glory which our Lord has merited for us through his death and victory. Hear us, Father of all mercy, in Jesus Christ, in whom we have the pardon of all sin and life everlasting. Amen. And now, the Mr. and Mrs. Society of the First Protestant Reformed Church would like to present Reverend Herman Hoeksema speaking on our present controversy in the light of history. Reverend Hoeksema. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, a heretic is one that opposes one or more fundamental tenets authorized by the church to which that heretic belongs. In the light of that definition, I claim and want to emphasize tonight that those that have left us and followed doctrines that are not authorized by our church are heretics. They are heretics because they oppose the three forms of unity by their conditional theology by the teaching that the promise of God is for all on condition of faith. That is heresy because it is in conflict with the clear teaching of the official doctrines of our churches. They are heretics because they subscribe to the doctrines of the three points which we have officially condemned in 1924 and which our churches, the Protestant Reformed churches, still condemn. Especially the first point of that doctrine they clearly subscribe to and really make it work. According to the first point of 1924, in connection with the proof that was adduced 
by that synod of 1944 uh, from the confession as well as from scripture uh, the gospel is a well-meant offer of salvation well-meant are the part of God for all that hear the preaching of the gospel today sad to say it's almost inexplicable to me that 25 or 30 years after we have rejected that first point of 1924 those that have left us are not ashamed to preach that God promises to every one of you salvation if you believe a general conditional promise to everyone head for head and soul for soul not only that but as the three points of 1924 as they said something concerning God must needs say something about man so also in the present situation the error was proclaimed that man must fulfill a prerequisite in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven also that is not literally expressed in the three points but nevertheless it is suggested because the second or third point maintained that the natural man through the power of common grace can do something good before God and therefore also because the those that have left us have really subscribed to the three points of 1924 uh, which we have condemned are heretics and nothing less. Thirdly, uh, they are heretics because they very deliberately and very purposely agitate and did agitate against the declaration of principles which was officially adopted by the Protestant Reformed Churches at the Synod of 1950 and 1951. On all these three accounts, those that have left us are heretics and nothing else. Now, tonight, I'm not going to speak directly on that controversy or rather I'm not going to speak directly on that heresy but I'm going to speak of the heresy in the light of the history of all ages that ought to be for all of us a very important subject because beloved 
When I speak of the history, I mean, of course, uh, the history of the church, not the history of the world in general, but the history of the church. In the second place, I must limit my subject, for when I speak in this evening hour on the history of the church, I mean particularly the history of the development of the truth, the history of doctrine. And even so, I must still limit my subject and speak to you not in general on the history of doctrine, but more particularly on the development and history of the most fundamental doctrines that the church can ever confess. The doctrine concerning God and man. The doctrine concerning God in relation to man and man in relation to God. And that that is important is not so much the case because we view the history of the doctrine of the church from the point of view of man and of man's instrumentality in developing that doctrine, but we look upon the history of the doctrine of the church from the point of view of God. From the point of view, namely, that God, by his Holy Spirit, guided the church in all the truth. And therefore, we must come to the conclusion, I will, and I hope you will, that the Holy Spirit, to this very moment, has guided the Protestant Reformed Church in all the truth, particularly in the truth of sovereign predestination. And when I speak on this subject, I'm going to call your attention uh, briefly, especially to four points. Namely, in the first place, to the truth that the doctrine of predestination in history is always become manifest as a most fundamental doctrine. The doctrine of predestination is most fundamental. In the second place, I'm going to show you that there were but few periods in history where the church stood four squarely and 100% on that truth of sovereign predestination, while most generally they somehow or other corrupted it. In the third place, I'm going to show you that the arguments of the opponents that were advanced against 
the doctrine of predestination are always the same. From the very beginning of history, the arguments against the doctrine of predestination are always the same as they are today. In that respect, there is nothing new. And finally, I want to close by issuing a word of warning and telling you that because of that light of history, we must emphatically watch. First of all, then, that the truth of predestination is, in the light of history, always shown forth as a most fundamental truth. You know, the history of the doctrine of the church reveals that not the truth of predestination was first a matter of controversy. It seems as if the church rather took that truth for granted and paid no special attention to that in the first two or three centuries. The fact is that there were other doctrines that demanded the attention of the church in that very early period. Such doctrine as the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in being and three in persons, stood for some time in the center of attention. Such doctrines as the doctrine concerning Christ, a Christ as the incarnated Word of God, his natures, his two natures, divine and human, and the relation of those two natures to each other, and the relation of the natures to the person. Also, that doctrine stood for some time in the center of attention. It was really not until the fourth century that the doctrine of predestination gained the interest and attention of the church. You know, I do but have to mention names like that of Augustine and Pelagius to cause you to understand and that that controversy concerning predestination was called to the attention of the church. Pelagius lived in the fourth and first part of the fifth century. He was, in every respect, uh, from a human point of view, a nice man. That's always the case. That's often the case, at least. 
with heretics. That was also the case with Arminius, and that's often the case with those that deny the truth. Pelagius was moreover a man of outwardly sound morals. He lived a good life, outwardly. And it never had a deep consciousness of sin before God. Uh, probably because he was outwardly a sound moral man. And therefore, Palladius began to teach. In the first place, that man is born without sin, is born free. Pelagius denied the doctrine of total depravity. He denied that man is born in sin and guilt and iniquity. Moreover, he maintained that principally, really, a man could live holily without grace. In fact, he taught that many of the Old Testament saints had actually lived a perfect life without the grace of God. And he taught that even if a man would need grace, need grace of conversion, a man could merit that grace by his own moral worth. And that was the doctrine of Pelagius. Now, it is very remarkable, and that is the point I want to make, uh, that Augustine opposed Pelagius and he surely contradicted on the basis of scripture his doctrine that man was born without sin and guilt and iniquity that was born without corruption and he maintained very strongly uh, that a man is born totally depraved, especially in later life. Augustine maintained that truth very emphatically. Man is totally corrupt without any capability of doing any good and always inclined to all evil. And even the so-called virtues of the natural man, Augustine taught, are not to be attributed uh, to any moral or spiritual worth, are not to be attributed either uh, to any manifestation of grace, but are simply uh, glittering sins, according to Augustine. They're simply glittering sins and nothing else. When uh, the Romans, he teaches, when the Romans taught 
uh, or rather, when the Romans emphasized a good moral life, as some of them did, Augustine teaches uh, that this was only because they sought their own glory and their own reputation among men. But there is no spiritual and no moral good in the natural man. Man is totally corrupt. But uh, that is not the only point and not the most important point I want to make. The most important point is this, that although Pelagius did not speak of predestination whatsoever, Pelagius simply spoke of man. He simply denied that man was born corrupt in his sin. He proclaimed that man could do good without the grace of God. Although Pelagius never mentioned the subject of predestination, Augustine finally principally opposed him exactly on the basis of that factor. In other words, predestination for Augustine was the very foundation of the doctrine of total depravity. Something that you say about man, according to Augustine, is the basis, always the basis, as its basis, I mean, in something that you say about God. You can never talk about man without talking about God. And therefore, Augustine taught man only when he's totally depraved so that he's incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil has the need of the absolutely free and sovereign grace of God. The moment you make a man something better, something else, he doesn't need the grace of God anymore. On the other hand, the moment you leave God, God, in relation to man, in relation to the sinner, the moment you say God predestinated, that is, the moment you say God elected and reprobated man according to his sovereign good pleasure, at that moment leave man absolutely in the power and in the hand of God. Hence, when Augustine opposed Pelagius uh, against his uh, doctrine of the free will of man and the goodness of the natural man, he finally came to the doctrine of predestination. And he taught and the older he became, for the very different periods in Augustine too, different periods in his life, Augustine did not always remain the same. The more, the older he got and the more he was opposed by the enemy of predestination, 
And by the enemy of the doctrine of total depravity, the more Augustine set himself upon the principle of the sovereignty of God in election and reprobation. And therefore the older uh, Augustine became, the more you study him, the more the farther you advance in the study of his life and doctrine, the more you find that Augustine emphasized the truth of sovereign election and sovereign reprobation. Both. That was the doctrine of predestination as taught by Augustine over against Palladius and that was the first time when it's become very evident that the doctrine of predestination is fundamental, fundamental, basic for all the truth. Now I must take a big jump. You know, I'll say pretty soon, I'll show you pretty soon, that the church did not remain long on the basis of that truth, not very long. As soon after Augustine, the church departed and became what is called a semi-Pelagian. Uh, I'll speak on that presently. And therefore I must take a jump. There is one figure in between that's very remarkable. In the ninth century, Augustine lived in the fourth uh, and fifth centuries, and the controversy between Augustine and Pelagius was settled at the Synod of Ephesus in 431. In the ninth century, there was a lonely figure, the figure that is worthy of being remembered nevertheless, although it's hardly ever mentioned, the name of Gottschalk. Gottschalk insisted very strongly on the truth of double predestination, of election and reprobation. And because of that truth, he was despised, persecuted by the church, and put into prison. And because he maintained that truth until the very end of his life, he rotted, literally rotted in prison because he confessed the truth of sovereign predestination. The church, as I say, had become a semi-Pelagian. And the first figure we have the well-known figure in history uh, that again emphasized the doctrine of double predestination is Calvin. Calvin. Calvin, on the whole, returned in his doctrine 
over the semi-Pelagianism of the church at that time to Augustine. He taught that God, in a sovereign grace, had mercy to whom he will have mercy. And at the same time, in a sovereign dispensation, pardons whom he will have it. That's Calvin. Very strongly, in his institutes already, Calvin developed that doctrine of predestination perhaps even more than did Augustine. Calvin developed it more than uh, it was ever developed by the church. He developed it from scripture. He developed it from a past doctrine. He showed that predestination was fundamental for all other doctrines and that the moment you deny predestination, you must deny all kinds of doctrines. And he also argued from scripture and with many texts he proved from the Bible that double predestination is taught in Holy Writ. That was Calvin. And also Calvin, by the way, the older he got, the more he emphasized the truth of that double predestination. That's always the case. That's the case, that's the case with me too. Let me uh, say that a moment. If I had not always been opposed from the very beginning of my ministry, if my doctrine of sovereign grace had not been opposed from the very start of my ministry of the word, uh, most probably I would never have become as strong on that truth as I am today. But that was the trouble. There's some here that know that. There's some here that know my history in my first congregation. Holland, 14th Street. When I came to that church in Holland, 14th Street, in 1915, uh, there were but very few people that were really reformed. Very few. I think in a congregation of about 180 families at the time, there were probably not more than, oh, let me say, really 25 people that were reformed, at least 25 families. And the rest called themselves reformed, as many, many people do today. You know, I said last Sunday morning in my sermon in Hope, uh, people believe in sovereign predestination, they say, yes. 
They believe in election and believe in approbation. But, they say, but. And the moment I hear that, today, I don't trust the business. The moment I hear someone say, oh yes, I believe in sovereign election, a sovereign predestination, but, but, but man is responsible. Uh, but uh, you must not make man a stock and block. Uh, but, uh, but uh, we must uh, believe. The moment you say that, the moment a man says that, I don't trust him anymore. Not anymore. You must not say, I believe in sovereign predestination. I believe in sovereign election and reprobation. But, you must say, and, and, and. Oh. I believe in sovereign election and reprobation and. And. Therefore, I believe in the responsibility of man. I believe in sovereign predestination and, and, therefore I believe that man has never a stock of blood, whether he's reprobated or less. That would do my saying, not but, but and. But, beloved, that's what they did in my first congregation. My first congregation was always but, 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 but. And uh, they didn't like my preaching at all. That is, gradually, I convert, uh, God's grace converted some. And gradually they saw the truth. But many were opposed and hated the truth of predestination. I remember I came by one man that was rather, uh, oh, in a way, rather uh, quite a figure in the church and family visitation. I asked the man, of course, whether he had fruit under my preaching. No, he said, no. I don't like your preaching at all. He said, you don't? What's the matter? Oh, he says, I want the good old invitation. I want the good old invitation. I says to him, El. El was the name. Aren't you in the kingdom of God yet? Oh, yes, sir, oh, yes. Well, you want to go to old invitation while you're in? Suppose I, uh, I said to him, suppose I invite you over for a cup of coffee uh, next Sunday evening. And you sit in my living room and I give you a cup of coffee and a cigar. And I say nothing else to you than, uh, come in now, come in now, come in now. What would you say? Oh, I said, I think you'd be crazy. Uh, that's what you want to do, what you want me to do with my congregation? I'll never do it, Al. I'd never do that. Never. Never. We believe that the church is composed of believers and their spiritual seed. And the good old invitation I will never give. But that was the case everywhere. So finally, 
At the end of one year, there came a split at the congregation. Not as big as they thought, but there's a split anyway. That was my first year of the ministry because of my doctrine of sovereign grace and sovereign predestination. That's the way it was. And because of that opposition, I, by the grace of God, had to set my foot against that false doctrine and develop most strongly in the direction of sovereign grace. So also did Calvin. So did Augustine. Calvin was also opposed in his doctrine. Opposed by a man like Piggers and Georges and others. And the more they opposed him, the more Calvin developed the doctrine of sovereign predestination. You can easily tell the difference between a book like his Institutes and his Commentaries and his final book on Calvin's Calvinism that's published. Uh, shows his development. There is absolutely strong on the doctrine. So it is. Because, beloved, the doctrine of predestination is fundamental, so fundamental that unless you maintain it and preach it and teach it, you cannot maintain and preach any other element of the truth. That is plain from the next step I must take, the well-known Synod of Dordrecht. That is really the close of the period of the development of the doctrine of predestination. After the Synod of Dordrecht, nothing new has ever, ever been developed in that direction. At least nothing appreciably new. You know the history. About 50 years after Calvin's death, the doctrine of predestination was corrupted by the Arminians. Arminians also began, as all heretics do, he began to play hocus-pocus with the truth. Heretics always play hocus-pocus. They never come out right. They always try to camouflage their heresy. The truth never has to be camouflaged. But heresy always has to be camouflaged. And they try to camouflage it. And so did Arminius. And he finally gained influence in disciples. He even became professor in Leiden, in the University of Leiden, in the theological seminary there and trained theological students for the ministry of the Word of God in the Reformed Church. And in Hauda, in 1610, Arminius died in 1609. 
in Chauda, the city of Chauda, in 1610, the remonstrance, the Armenians, came together and composed what are called the five articles of the remonstrance. These five articles of the remonstrance deal with God's predestination, with the death of Christ, with man's original corruption, with man's conversion, and with the Christian's perseverance in faith and sanctification. These articles of the remonstrance were condemned by the fathers of Dodrecht in five opposing articles. That is why we have the canons of Dordrecht, which you will do well to read and to study carefully. But what I want to say is this, first of all. Why must there be five articles of the remonstrance? Why was it not sufficient to merely have a chapter on sovereign election and sovereign predestination, which the Armenians denied. The answer is, beloved, that again, the doctrine of predestination is fundamental for all other doctrines. That is why the Synod of Daughter, as well as the Armenians, themselves, the remonstrants, needed five propositions and five chapters of the canon. The moment you say something about God, the moment you say, as the Arminians did, that the election of God is conditional, that's what they did, God's election is conditional. That is, God's election was conditioned on the faith of man. The moment you say something like that, you must say something about Christ. You must say something about the atonement. Don't you understand? The moment you say, on the other hand, uh, that God's election, as is the doctrine of the canon, is absolutely unconditional, so that it does not depend on anything in man. The moment you say that, you must also say something about Christ. You must also say something about the atonement. If you say that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world whomever he wills unto salvation. That moment you must also maintain that 
the satisfaction of Christ is not general but particular. Christ did not die for all men, but Christ died for the elect. Moreover, if you say something about God and predestination and something about Christ, it's not the reason that you must say something about man. Either they are many doctrine is true that Christ died for all men and that those who will can be saved or the reformed doctrine is true according to scripture that Christ did not die for all men but that he died for the elect alone and then the application of the death of Christ cannot possibly depend on man, but must depend absolutely on the sovereign grace of God. In other words, if you made God God and Christ, the servant of God, with limited atonement and satisfaction, you can leave man entirely in the power of God so that he can do nothing. Nothing unto salvation. But the moment you make predestination conditional and the atonement of Christ general, as far as God's intention is concerned, you must make man capable of willing salvation. The total depravity of man cannot be maintained in the light of conditional election and general atonement. And so uh, comes the question of conversion and comes the question of perseverance. If predestination is maintained throughout, as it must be maintained, if sovereign election is maintained throughout, so that from that sovereign election flows everything, then also the grace of God unto conversion and regeneration and perseverance is sovereign. On the other hand, the moment you make election and reprobation conditional on the part of man, and you make the atonement general, so that Christ died for all men, then of course, man has the will to believe and the grace of God simply comes to help him, help him to believe and help him to persevere. That is the fundamental nature of predestination. The moment you say, I believe in sovereign predestination, you say, I believe in God as the God of my salvation. Without man, unconditioned. That is why, uh, as I said in my introduction, uh, that is why principally uh, those that have left us have opposed with their entire conditional theology the canons of Godrest and in general, 
the three forms of unity, the confessions of the Reformed Church. No question about it in my mind. No question about it. Oh, I can hardly, I can hardly believe. I can hardly get it through my mind yet. And that 25 years after the Protestant Reformed Church has come into existence, the Protestant Reformed Churches that maintain the truth that God is sovereign in election and in the application of election. I cannot imagine, I cannot believe it, that 25 years after we rejected the three points of Kalamazoo, now in our own Protestant form churches, the heresy was attempted to be infiltrated. That God promises to every one of you salvation if you believe. I cannot believe it. To me, that's amazing. It's amazing. It's more amazing yet, it's more amazing yet that you are not all amazed. I cannot understand that. I cannot understand it. I cannot understand how a 25 years of existence of the past and form just a little more, has created even a possibility of teaching that our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. That's so, that's so evidently corrupt uh, that's so evidently Arminian, that's so evidently modern, uh, that I, I must simply say I'm amazed. I'm amazed. Because, beloved, there is no question about it. Uh, that our fathers, and that's very amazing too, you know, at the time, of the Synod of Dodre. There were plenty of our fathers that talked about conditions. They did talk rather freely about conditions. It's all the more amazing that when they came face to face with the Armenians, now the trace of all that condition of theology is left in our confessions and that, on the contrary, the canons of Dutta emphatically condemn that whole Armenian condition of theology. That's amazing, but that's true. That's literally true. Oh, I have a few quotations here of the canons. 
which uh, I will take time to read. In Canons 2, uh, Canons 1b2, we read, of the subterfuge of the Armenians, according to which they like to distinguish between, uh, like to distinguish election into two kinds of election. The one incomplete, revocable, non-decisive, and conditional. The other complete, irrevocable, decisive, and absolute. By this distinction, they mean, of course, that God's election is of such a nature uh, that we can ourselves determine whether or not we will be elect, don't you see? Uh, God's election is conditional, is non-decisive, until we come and make it decisive by fulfilling the condition of faith, by fulfilling the condition of obedience, and by fulfilling the condition of perseverance. That's our meaning. All right. But this, all oh, those that uh, uh, so love conditions are so in love with conditions because that's what they are they are in love with conditions not in love with not in love with uh, uh, form too. they are in love with conditions and those that are so in love with conditions they say oh we do not believe in uh, conditional election oh no Election is absolute. Election is decisive. Election is unconditional. We do not believe in that, but we believe that the application of election in our salvation is conditional. That's what they say. The application of the application of election in time, they say, is conditional. That's what they say. But don't you see, beloved, that that is absolutely impossible? Don't you see that if the application of condition of salvation to us is conditional in time, that the order of election in eternity, must also be conditional. All things flow as far as salvation is concerned. All things flow from the election of God. All things flow from the counsel of God as to salvation. As it is in time, so it is in the counsel of God. As it is in the counsel of God, so it is in time. When you say the counsel of God is unconditional, you say the application of salvation is unconditional. Can never fail. Why? Because Scripture teaches in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he had chosen us before the foundation of the world. According as he chosen us, so he blesses us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. If he has chosen us conditionally, he blesses us conditionally. If he hasn't blessed us, if he doesn't bless us conditionally, hasn't chosen us conditionally. And that is reform, beloved. That is reform, nothing else. Unconditional election requires unconditional application of salvation. No conditions at all. I could quote more. But I will take no time. There's much more in the canons. Uh, in, in the same canons, you have this. In B, B3 of the same chapter, we read of the error of monsters that God did not choose certain persons, but rather, note, out of all possible conditions, he chose the act of faith as a condition of salvation. Now, the opponents, the, those that departed from us, those that are no longer Protestant formed, that do not want to be Protestant formed anymore, they don't want to. Don't ever say they do. They don't. They don't. Those that say that they are, uh, that they believe in unconditional election, they will condemn this uh, error of the Armenians, and they say, "No, we don't believe that. We don't believe." Uh, that God chose out of all possible conditions the act of faith as a condition of their salvation. Yes, we beloved, again I say, a faith is a condition in time. It is a condition in election. You can never, can never fail. A faith is presented as a condition which we must fulfill, of course, in time. Then, of course, faith consists as, in, as a condition in election. If faith does not exist as a condition in election, it cannot exist as a condition in time. That's impossible. According as he has chosen us, so he blesses us with all blessings of salvation in heavenly places, in Christ. That's the truth. And one more idea. The uh, Armenians teach this, beloved, that in the election unto faith, this condition is beforehand demanded, that is a prerequisite, therefore, that man should use a right the light of nature. Of course. One error leads to another. If you want conditional election, if you want faith as a condition, you must maintain that man has somehow, uh, maybe not the power of faith, but at any rate, as the Armenian teach, has the power to desire faith, to pray for faith, all those things. All those things have often been 
proclaimed in the Reformed churches, in, in, in churches that call themselves Reformed, certainly. I remember in Eastern Avenue. I came for uh, a family visitation by a party that had a son that was entirely different. And uh, he was really entirely different, had no, evidently no, no, no uh, interest in salvation, no interest in the truth, no interest in doctrine, although he was quite a bright young man. And his father told me, Domini, you must, you must tell him to pray. Tell him to pray. I said, tell him to pray? Tell him to pray? You think he can pray? You think he can pray, I asked. Well, he said, you're entirely different from Dr. Briggs. Dr. Bates came to my house and told him to pray. No, Dr. Bates told him, he gave him a box of Dutch master cigars and would pray for a whole week. That's what Dr. Bates told him. I told him I will never do that, brother. If, if the brother, the young man can pray, he's a Christian. Even, even if he can uh, utter the first sigh, the first longing for salvation, he's saved. So either or. That's in the Christian form church. But what I mean to say is this. The opponents will say, of course, uh, we don't believe in conditions like that. You heard that. We don't believe in conditions like that. We don't believe in conditions which man must fulfill. God must fulfill the condition. God must fulfill all the conditions. Now, in the first place, beloved, that's nonsense. God fulfilled conditions? That's nonsense. But in the second place, they don't mean that. They don't mean that. Oh, no. It's very evident from the preaching, from the emphasis on the preaching that we've heard in that direction in late years. It's very evident that they mean that man must fulfill the conditions. Very evident. They preach. That's, that's why they preach uh, what they call the responsibility of man. That's why they say man is not a stock and rock. He must fulfill conditions. Don't you see? That's the whole thing. That is indeed the doctrine of those that have departed from us. No question about it. But I must go on. The doctrine of the Armenians was condemned by the Senate of Dorothy. All the condition of theology of the Armenians was condemned. There was nothing left. After that, beloved, there was a period in the church that uh, all might be characterized by some dead confessionalism. There was no life in the church. No life. 
the period of uh, Calvinistic and Reformed confessions is terminated by the well-known Westminster Confession, which was composed in 1647. And even that confession is by no means as beautiful as the Arabic Catechism, or as the Netherlands Confession, or as the Canons of Dordrecht, by no means. I think already the Westminster Confession strongly reveals uh, that it was an age of a certain dead confessionalism. No question about it. But after that period was long period of dead confessionalism. The church was dead. Very little life. Many uh, groups gathered within the church to have a little uh, fellowship together, but the church was very dead. Methodism arose in England for that same reason. And in the Netherlands, of course, in the Netherlands you still have two awakenings. In 34, you have the secession, the secession, the upscaling under the court. And very striking, also, that upscaling uh, shows that, that the doctrine of predestination was fundamental, fundamental, and that uh, the doctrine of election was at the heart of the gospel and the heart of the church. That's evident even from the very first sermon that the cock preached after he was deposed. Uh, by the day the from the Kirk. He preached on Ephesians 2 8. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of you, not of us, it is a gift of God. And the same is true of the first period of Dr. Kirby, who was the author, together with Lohman and Rutgers, of the well-known Dolianzi in the, in, in the Netherlands in 1886. Those two periods were returned uh, return to the canvas of Dordrecht, to the, uh, to the uh, view and doctrines of the 16th and 17th centuries. Then, of course, we have the history of uh, in our own church. In 1924, sad to say, 1924, beloved, the Reformed Church cast us out. Danov, Reverend Opoff, and myself, together with our consistories, and together with our people. They cast us out. And why did they cast us out? Because we were in opposition to the doctrine authorized by the church. Were we declared heretics? Oh no. We never were. We never were declared heretics. 
They don't dare to declare me a heretic today, not the Christian Reformed Church. See, they're dead. In fact, they write me letters that I better uh, uh, write books as fast as possible. They mean, of course, before I die, that I may finish. I received letters like that more than once. Received one this week here. They know that we are reformed. They know that. They did not cast us out because we were reformed. Krishna. In the acts of sinners, they said that it could not be denied that we are reformed according to the principles of the confession. Though they say it was with the tendency to one-sidedness, and the one-sidedness was in the right direction. Don't forget that. But they cast us out in 1924, and if there are any of the Christian Reform members in my audience, uh, please bear that in mind and get it into your, into your heart and mind. They cast us out principally because we were reformed, and they are not. That's all. Principally, they cast us out because we did not want to believe in the Armenian three points, the three points of 1924 uh, that maintain that there is a grace of God to all men, that there is a grace of God to all men in the preaching of the gospel, which means uh, that on the part of God he is mindful to save everybody. They did not say if they believed, but that's what they meant. And, on the other hand, they taught that man by nature can do good, natural good, civil good, but good nevertheless, good, good, free good, under the influence of Holy Spirit, under the influence of grace, of common grace, man can do good. Doctrines, beloved, which are not only never found in any Reformed confessions, but which are quite contrary to all that are, is adopted in the three forms of unity of the Reformed churches. Quite contrary. Get the castes out. And now, 25 years after, we stand principally before the same question. Uh, what do you want? Do you want to be present for him? That's the question. You want to maintain the truth which we have confessed these 25, 30 years 
That's personally from churches. You want to maintain that we believe in unconditional Sabbath predestination. You want to maintain with us that the preaching of the gospel is not a promise of God to all on condition of faith as was taught was preached a couple of years ago in the first church. You want to maintain that the promise of the gospel is unconditional, is for the elect alone, and that faith is not a condition. You want to maintain that? Then you're proud and form. Don't want to maintain that? With all love, without malice, I say to you, go. Don't stay with us. Don't stay with us. I'm not pleading here for a mob. I'm not pleading for a crowd. I never did. I'm not pleading that if you are not personally formed, Please stay with us. Go. Go. By all means. You harm us by your very membership as has been shown in the recent past in the Protestant Reformed Churches. Why should you stay Unless it is your purpose to corrupt the truth and corrupt the church by your very presence, why don't you go? We are not interested in size. We are not interested in pound. The church is not a fish hatchery. The church is not a meat market. The church is the gathering of the elect. And no matter, no matter, no matter how small we become, that's not the question. That's not the question at all. Maybe we were too big already in 1924. I'm sure many went with us in 1924 that should never have gone with us. To them I say, go, by all means go. Even we must be decimated, go. Because we are interested in preserving the truth, the presence we want, truth, nothing else. That's the way it was throughout the history of the church. I cannot keep you any longer, I guess. I must say something, though. I said uh, that... Uh, uh, it was but very few periods when the church stood on the on the solid basis of predestination of the truth of predestination 100% and that is true that period was there in the period of Augustine and Pelagius a little while as long as Augustus lived, 
and as long as Augustus' influence was felt in the church. Already during his life, the uh, truth of predestination taught by Augustine was attacked. Was attacked by men like Faustus and uh, Celestius and uh, even by some of his friends. Although they did not say so, the very questions they asked him showed that they were not 100% agree with it anymore. And after Augustus' death, the church became semi-Pelagian. In the Synod of 529, uh, which pretended to uh, walk in the way of, of Augustus, that Synod of 529 was really downright Pelagian. After that, you have the Dark Ages. In Calvin, there is a moment of strength. Calvin and the Reformation in Switzerland and those that followed him in England and Scotland and the Netherlands, he had the influence that strengthened the Reformed Church and maintained the Reformed Confession. And an influence of all the Reformed Confessions that exist today. But, hundred years after, the Reformed Churches again not only split, but they were corrupted. Corrupted by Arminianism. So strongly corrupted that it was necessary to compose the canon. Then again, you have a strong period of deadness and corruption. All the truth of predestination in those dead years was not denied, but they didn't mention it. Didn't mention it. It was no longer the heart of the gospel. That's almost worse than in Ireland. There was no opposition anymore, but there was no strong maintenance of the Reformed faith either. Until by the cock and pepper, the Reformed truth again was maintained for a while. And, I say, in the light of the history, in the light of the history of the doctrine in the light of the guidance of the Holy Spirit in regard to the doctrine of predestination and the total depravity of man and sovereign grace unto salvation, in the light of that, I say, we, we are the Reformed Churches today. I challenge anyone to deny it. In the light of what I've said, in the light of the history of doctrine, from Augustine to Calvin to Synod of Dordrecht, to the cock and pepper in his first period anyway, in the light of that history, not the liberated, not the Christian reformed, but we, the Protestant Reformed Churches stand for squarely on the basis of the Reformed truth, as no other church does. We stand at the end of the process of development of Reformed doctrine 
as transformed churches, guided by the Holy Spirit to our spot, to our place in history. That's the way it is. One more remark before I close. I could elaborate on that, but it's not necessary. You know it anyway. It's very striking, beloved, very striking, that from the very beginning of history, the doctrine of predestination was always opposed by the very same arguments by which the opponents of our churches and the opponents of that doctrine uh, oppose the doctrine today. The same thing. At the time of Augustine, and there are a few texts. A text the same as were quoted by Piggius and Georgius against Calvin. Text the same as were quoted by the Remonstrants in the beginning of the 17th century. Text the same as were quoted in support of the three points of 1924. Same thing. Texts like Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33:11. As I live, said the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but therein that the wicked return, repent, and live. A text like Second uh, Timothy 2:4. God will that all men shall be saved. A text like Romans 2.4 God uh, God's goodness leadeth man to repentance. All those texts were quoted against Augustine. Were quoted in, in against Calvin. Were quoted in against the uh, uh, fathers in uh, at the Synod of Dordrecht. Were quoted in 1924. The same thing. I don't have to refute that. All the organism of Scripture is against that. Very striking, however, that those that have departed from us now even quote John 3.16 to sustain the heresy that God promises every one of your salvation as you believe. John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's the new one. But when those arguments from Scripture are exhausted, beloved, that doesn't take long, then they approach you with other arguments, philosophical arguments. They did without us. They accused Augustine of denying the responsibility of man. If you believe in sovereign predestination and unconditional election, you cannot uh, maintain the responsibility of man. That was the same story against Calvin. Just read Calvin's Calvinism. That the same story of the Christian formed churches against us in 1924. That's the same story of our opponents today. Same thing. 
Those that left us come with the same story, responsibility. Mind you, that's easy because, of course, uh, they cannot explain responsibility themselves. You ask them, you ask them, what do you mean by responsibility? They never say, I, I never give you an answer. They never do. Responsibility. Responsibility, beloved. Responsibility certainly does not mean that man is sovereignly free. In no sense of the word. Man is not sovereignly free. Even in his moral choice, in all his moral life, he is absolutely, as a creature, dependent upon God. Power. And, as a sinner, as a sinner, he is dead in sin and misery. Irresponsibility, yes, yes, I'll come to that presently. But responsibility certainly does not mean that the sinner is able to choose the good. He's not, not able to choose the good. He never was able to choose the good. For he must breath out. That's your form. That's scripture. But responsibility, oh yeah. Within the sphere of God's sovereign determination, even within the sphere of election and reprobation, man responds to God. Cannot help it. Cannot help it. Responds to God. He says to God, No! from a sinful heart. And for that no, he is going to be condemned. Well, he says to God, yes, by God's sovereign grace, for which he has to thank the God of his salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's his responsibility. Responsibility Beloved, I say again, we believe in unconditional election and unconditional sovereign grace and the application, the unconditional application of sovereign grace. And then we do not say, but, 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 but we say, and, and, and. God's grace makes man responsible in the highest sense of the word. Higher sense of the word. Unto all eternity. But that was the argument against Augustine. Against Augustine, it was said, uh, is uh, theology is fatalism. The same thing is true of Calvin. The same thing is true of the Reformed Fathers. The same thing is true of 1924 against us. You've, you've read those arguments. The same thing is true of those that have left us. Same old story. Never heard it? Oh, they too say, we make man a stock of luck. What nonsense? Man is not a stock of luck, of course he is. But nature is much worse than a stock of luck. Much worse. 
stuck a block or two nothing. The natural man can only sin, nothing else. Stuck a block. Stuck. That man is not a stuck a block does not mean to be sure that he can hear the gospel and that he can receive the gospel or that he can accept the gospel. Oh, no. doesn't mean that you can preach the man uh, uh, the promise is for you all if you believe. Oh, no. That is not a stuck and block, beloved, means a sinner. They are so dead. That is the very opposite of a stuck and a block. Hates God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength and can do no good. Only sin. And that is not a stuck and a block as a Christian means that the grace of God has so quickened them that he loves the Lord his God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. Stuck a block? Nonsense. And so on. But, beloved, the conclusion of the whole matter is the conclusion of the practical conclusion uh, my lecture to you tonight is this. Watch. Watch. Watch as office bearers. Watch over the preaching and over the preachers. that they may not corrupt the truth as has been done in late years in the Protestant Reformed churches. Watch over the instruction of your children in the church. Also that has been corrupted in our own first Protestant Reformed Church for years. I don't know how long how it is in other churches. Even all in our own Protestant Reformed Churches, the instruction of our children were, was neglected. Few months, four or five months of instruction, half hour, forty minutes, And the classes are dismissed. I know it. That's the way it was in our own church. Shame on us. Shame on us, beloved. Watch over the categorical instruction. By all means. Watch over the instruction in your own schools. Don't think that because you have schools that are called Protestant schools that you are uh, finished. Watch over those schools. Watch over those teachers that teach in those schools by all means. Watch. Watch over the organic life of the church. 
Watch over your societies. Your men's societies. Your young ladies' societies. And ladies' societies. And young men's societies. Watch that they do not invite all kinds of speakers to corrupt the truth as has been done for our, in our societies as Protestant churches. Watch. Watch. I want to say a special word on this. Watch over your leagues. Your leagues. Your men's leagues. And especially your ladies' league. They have been means of corruption, perhaps more than any other means. Corruption. Because they are not under the supervision of any particular consistory. They can do as they please. children, their own families. Very important, beloved. It's very important. The church is at stake. The truth is at stake. Nothing less than that is at stake. You must watch. Watch over your own life. That you walk worthy of the calling wherein wherewith God hath called you. And above all, I ask you to watch with me and with our ministers and with our consistories in prayer before God that he may deem us worthy to stand fast and to persevere even unto the end that no one take our crown. I thank you. We're not going to let you go just yet. We're going to sing Psalter number 221, during which we will take a collection. Now, the Mr. and Mrs. Society decided to give this collection to the Beacon Lights organization. I don't think they're aware of that yet, but I think they'll uh, welcome the news. They can use the money. And in connection with that, if there are any people here who do not take Beacon Lights, I'm sure they would be very happy to have you subscribe to it. So let's sing Psalter number 221. Great Shepherd who leadest thy people in love, mid cherubim's dwelling shine thou from above. In might come and save us, thy people restore, and we shall be saved when thy face shines once more. Let's sing the three stanzas of number 221.